when I read Matthew 1 and 2 or Luke 1 and 2 or anything there, I'm putting it back, first of all, into its own ambient time mm -hmm. and asking myself, okay, what did they mean to communicate? It, it, it's, it's like if somebody's speaking to you in a foreign language, somebody speaks to me in Armenian, say, I don't know Armenian. So you have to go into sign language and try and figure out what's going on. Now, that's only like the first stage. Mm -hmm. The second stage is if I think this is of some value, and otherwise I probably wouldn't be bothered reading it. I then ask myself, is this still of enduring value today? Or is it something absolutely dated, perfectly reasonable, made sense, required in the year, let's say 90, but absolutely outdated now? I just want to get right into it. Yeah. Technology taking over the mind state. Conversations did it out, just called a bad case. Then they base it off a character, a bad trait. Ain't no way to take it back, cause now it's too late. And so they say, it's our own fault. Making own decisions, precision took a void, not the right visions. Feeling so annoyed, no kids outside playing, they inside with the toys. Back in the day, I used to play into the street like song. Played up in the woods, I found my way back home. Both sets of friends move, now I'm all alone. My brother moved from Massachusetts all along. We came to form a bond that could never break. Friendship's a lesson that's a give and take. Friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I am your host, and this is episode number 128. And it's part number two of our series that we're doing for Christmas called Good News for All People. And today's guest is a repeat guest, uh, John Dominic Crossan. You need to go to Amazon and pick up his book uh, that he wrote with Marcus Borg. It's called The First Christmas, and it's subtitled What the Gospels Really Teach About Jesus' Birth. And as you're going to see in this episode, the book, by the way, is like $11 in paperback. It's $1.99 on Kindle. So why are you not, why are you not on Amazon already <laughs> downloading this book? It is really good. Now, Here's the thing with this book. Uh, first of all, Crossan is someone who, in Bible college and seminary and all the places, I was taught you got you got to watch out for it because he's super edgy and he has some false teachings and heretical and, of course, like once I kind of busted out of that mold, he's one of the first people I started to read, and I'll admit that this book. I read this book last year during Christmas and I got about halfway through it and I put it away like under a stack of books on the other side of the room because it stretched me in really in ways that I didn't feel I was really ready for at the time. And now you're going to see it in this episode, but he, he has a really unique approach to the, uh, the birth story of Jesus and the gospels. And he talks about how in his understanding, it's more of a parable than it is something that's literal. Uh, he calls it like made-up stories or fictional stories about real people. So the, the characters, he says, existed, but the story surrounding them was told in such a way as to get across a certain point. And so he's going to take us a little bit deeper into that in the episode, uh, but really, really good stuff. And he has a very high regard uh, for the scriptures and for the story of Jesus. And I think he takes a really unique approach. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you. A couple things. Uh, the Heretic Shop, if you head over there, I put the link in the show notes. Uh, there's some new hoodies and uh, there's some new like t-shirts and stuff there. So head over there, check it out. If you order now, it's not going to be there in time for Christmas. I think I ordered something last week and it said it was going to be there uh, by December 23rd, I think. So you're, you're probably going to miss the boat on the shipping, but you'll get it shortly after Christmas. Uh, so check it out. There's some hats there. There's some hoodies. There's some t-shirts. There's some, I think, stickers. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. Check it out. The Heretic Shop. Uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show financially. So if this has encouraged you, uh, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, consider sharing a little bit of your money with the show uh, to cover the, the cost of different fees to host stuff online. I put money away to help get me to Wild Goose, the Wild Goose Festival. 
uh, next summer, assuming it meets. I don't know if it's going to meet with with COVID. Uh, some of the money helped me buy a new computer because my computer was uh, failing me. And so I was having some difficulty with it. So I was able to purchase a computer over the summer because I was going to go to Wild Goose, but uh, Wild Goose was canceled because of COVID. So I used that money to buy a computer. So thank you to our patrons. Um, the quality of the show, I hope, uh, measures up to the quality of the equipment that I was able to buy. Uh, but you can share anywhere from $3 a month up to $20 a month. Every tier gets a reward. Uh, there's a bonus blog post slash vlog post um, every week. Uh, there's uh, one tier that has a uh, pre-release of a podcast episode, so maybe something that's coming out down the line that I will share with you. Uh, there's one group that's a Marco Polo group, and so uh, we actually video chat with each other. There's about six of us in there, I guess, who are sharing stuff on a somewhat regular basis. Uh, there's another tier that has a book that I send you in the mail. It's called The Heretic of the Quarter Club. So every few months, I send you a book that has impacted me. Uh, so check it out, patreon.com slash project. I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, special music today is from my friend Young Citizen. Uh, his stuff has been on the show before. He's a hip-hop artist here in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, one of my very good friends, and he has some new music that's coming out. He's doing great things in the world. Uh, so please go over to Apple Music, Spotify, download his stuff, share his stuff, uh, blast it from your speakers, uh, do do all the things. So all that to say, uh, this is episode number 128. And it's my conversation with the one and the only John Dominic Crossan. Enjoy. I can feel such a forward deal on my last meal. Crack the seal, so much I can take. Gotta take a meal, constant battle. Got so many wounds, hope they start to heal. It's getting real, it's getting real, yeah. It seems like I'm a crab in a bucket. It'll take a while before I catch one buffer. Uh-huh. Feeling like I'm living robotic. Once I get the chance, I'm a living iconic. Always catch me on my high. Ain't gonna never see me low. High above the cloudy skies. Yeah, Hello, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're in for a real treat as we sit down with repeat guest, John Dominic Cross. And so, Dom, uh, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to be with you, Glenn, for me too. Thank you. So uh, listeners, if you want to hear more uh, about Dom and his story, head back to the episode we recorded for Easter of 2020, where he shares a bit about himself and a whole lot of really good stuff from his book, uh, Resurrecting Easter. But today we're switching gears from Easter and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Christmas. We're in the middle of a series called Good News for All People. And I'm going to ask you, Dom, about that angelic announcement a little bit later uh, but for now, where I, I want to start is uh, maybe with the book that you wrote with Marcus Borg called The First Christmas, What the Gospels Really Say About Jesus' Birth. And just to kind of maybe set the stage a little bit for my question, uh, I grew up with the uh, annual church Christmas pageant version of the Christmas story, which is I think what a lot of our listeners grew up with as well. And in this version, uh, there was a play, usually by the kids in the church, Sometimes live animals are brought in, but the script was like a mashup of Matthew and Luke's birth story because the idea was that they're both telling the same story, but Matthew just includes a few things that Luke doesn't and vice versa. But your book really opened up my eyes to the fact that Matthew and Luke not only tell two radically different versions of Jesus's birth, but they do so very likely for very specific reasons. And to be honest with you, I read the book two times, once last year. And then once again this year, and uh, I'm still not sure I have my mind like completely wrapped around this. So maybe with that kind of setting the stage for you, can you talk a little bit about uh, the difference between Matthew's birth story and Luke's birth story, and maybe a bit about why each writer might have set kind of on his own journey to write the way that he did? Okay, let me begin before I answer your question. You made me think of Christmas by saying that. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Ireland, of course, and the the midnight mass was huge. But my most vivid memory of a midnight mass must, would have been from 19, I'm going to say it had to be before 45, 
was during the war. So let's say 43, it could be anywhere, you know, with, within those early 40s, going to midnight mass and seeing a whole group of strange people, men, standing at the back in uniforms I didn't recognize. Hmm. My father telling me that they were German flyers who were incarcerated, I suppose, in neutral Ireland in the Curra camp because they had probably quite deliberately, I don't think they got lost, taken a sharp left turn over London and headed for Ireland and crashed their plane or landed their plane in Ireland to have the rest of the war mm. as technical prisoners of war. And there they were all at midnight mass. Anyway, <laughs> let me get back to your question. We, we solved the question, of course, in the crib. You know, there you have the shepherds on one side and the um, wise men, the magi, <laughs> let's put it, a couple, three, three Iranians. <laughs> it's always ironic in American cribs. You have three Iranians there for right. anyway, three Persians. And every, everything is quite happy and it's all sort of conflated, which really is not the intention of Matthew and Luke. Mm. Each of them tells the story and it is a fictional story. I mean, if, if the word fiction offends people, remember that Jesus used fictions, we call them parables. That is, mm. if he really wanted to say something serious, he made up the story of the Good Samaritan or the prodigal son. So if people don't like parables, you know, take it up with Jesus. He's the bad influence in the New Testament. <laughs> right. Got <laughs> <laughs> this idea, you know, if you want to tell something important. So let me separate them for a moment. Let me look at Matthew as if we didn't know anything about Luke, mm. then Luke as if we do nothing about Matthew, because each of these authors knows exactly what they want to do, and each author does it superbly well. Mm. So conflation doesn't help. Okay, Matthew, for example. Matthew's imagining Jesus as the new Moses. That's why he gives what we call the Sermon on the Mount, for example, in chapter 6 and 7. It's not a Sermon on the Mount. It's the new Moses speaking the new law from the new Mount Sinai. Mm. The Sermon on the Mount trivialized it. Okay, now, Matthew is going to tell the story of the new Moses. There's going to be five big chunks in his gospel, and he's going to end up with Jesus in chapter 28 on a mountain in Galilee. So he wants, okay, I, I got it, Matthew. I got it. Jesus is the new Moses. Now, Matthew has to write what I'm going to call an overture, mm. not a first chapter. First chapter leads into a second chapter, third chapter. An overture is something that's given at the beginning, say if it's musical, say in a Gilbert and Sullivan musical, mm -hmm. which we saw every year in our high school when I was growing up. There's a medley of all the melodies you're going to hear throughout the rest of the play and you recognize, oh, that's this, that's that. Sometimes in a story, an author will write, not the first chapter, but some kind of a symbolic, parabolic vision of the whole mm. that's their purpose and, and therefore there's no missing years in between the overture kind of encapsulates summarizes the whole as if to say to you now if you get the message of the whole get this because mm. you know they're reading wall-to-wall -wall manuscript you and i pick up a book there's all sorts of aids there's something on the cover that tells you what's going on and there's a there's a table of contents and there's chapter headings. So we, we kind of know what's going on. Now pick up an ancient manuscript, very, very valuable. So nobody's wasting space. Hmm. Build wall to wall to wall with writing. And it's not even, it's in capitals and uncials and it's not even divided up. Hmm. Now you're so grateful that the first two chapters, I'm making the, using the modern terms, first two chapters give you a capsule of what's coming. For example, Matthew, he's going to talk about Jesus as the new Moses. Lo and behold, what happens when Jesus is born is he's almost killed because an evil king, a pharaoh as it were, a new pharaoh, wants to kill him and in order to kill him, kills all the young males. Hmm. Now, anyone in the first century who doesn't have lights going off in their head and saying, uh-uh, new Moses, new pharaoh, <laughs> Is missed the whole point. Right. And in fact, it's when the Magi come to uh, Jerusalem, <laughs> this is the giveaway. They're following a star. 
And all of a sudden, they've asked for directions, which we know men never do. So this is, right. the, part, this is the one part where you don't believe the story. <laughs> the Magi stop with Herod and ask for directions. Now, you want to say, follow your star, idiots. <laughs> but if they don't stop with Herod and ask for directions, there's going to be no slaughter of the innocents, no story about Jesus almost being killed, no Moses story. So, okay. But at that point, they ask Herod, Herod the Great, Where's the newborn king of the Jews? Now, that title is explosive because king of the Jews is a title only Rome could give and had given solemnly. <laughs> Mark Anthony, together with uh, Caesar Augustus, when they were at, at peace, had brought Herod the Great up to the capital and solemnly, with sacrifices, by the way, declared him to be king of the Jews. Now we have somebody coming in, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> king of the Jews, where's the newborn king of the Jews? Which is not calculated to get you good reception, by the way. <laughs> but the next time, and the only other time in Matthew's whole gospel, that we see Jesus referred to as king of the Jews, is on the cross. <laughs> so everything you're getting from Matthew is dark, as it were. It's not irradiated with light. We're, mm. we're not talking about Luke now. We're talking about Matthew. Uh, this, is a, this is a child who's going to die. It's not, it's not, it's not good news, actually. Mm. So Matthew is, is starting with that, and that's the logic of his story. So if you ask me historically as a historian, do I think that the slaughter of the innocents, as we call it, took place historically? I would say absolutely not. If you want to argue that Herod would do that sort of stuff, I would say absolutely yes. Hmm. In fact, if you went up to most, the maybe blunt tyrants and said, where's the new tyrant being born? That's probably a recipe to get the new tyrant child <laughs> executed. And that's hmm. it. So that's Matthew. And it's, it's absolutely a fantastic parable encapsulating and summarizing the whole story. Hmm. For Matthew, for Matthew. Now, there's absolutely no way that Luke could have written that story because that's not Luke's vision hmm. at all. Luke, as you know, is irradiated with light. Hmm. But now he's also making, in a way, the same point more delicately, just as definitely, because in chapter two, when he mentions who's in charge of the world, it's Augustus. Hmm. But now let me focus on Augustus for a moment. He is, in Latin, natus ad pacem, born for peace. Mm. His boast is we have, he has brought peace to the world. It could be cynical and saying, sure he has, by ending 20 years of Roman civil war. Of course he <laughs> has. But he has brought peace. And it's going to last. And then in the very next few verses, you have angels coming down from heaven to announce peace on earth. Mm. Uh, wait a minute, Any, anyone would say, wait a minute, we got that already. That, that's Augustus's job description. So how come we have Augustus bringing peace at the start of chapter two, and then Jesus bringing peace in the middle of chapter two? And so again, then very delicately, when you find Jesus presented in the temple, there's going to be the warnings about what's going to happen to him. So none of these stories in a way is, oh, birth of a baby, isn't this great, lovely time. There's a dark cloud of imperial injustice, to put it bluntly, mm. heavily, like, a, like really a dark cloud over Matthew. And over Luke, there's a cloud that looks like there might be rain, but it's not here yet, as it were. But both of them agree on this, that this child is born for danger. This child is going to oppose Roman law and order, which is, you might call cosmic injustice, if you will. Mm. So they agree on that, but they do it in completely different visions with regard to their own story. Mm. If you ask me, as a historian, what do I think I get out of that in terms of history? Well, I get Jesus, of course. Right. I get Mary and Joseph, I think his parents. Do I, do I get, for example, that he was born in Bethlehem? No, I don't think so. Matthew thinks that Joseph 
and Mary were living there, and that's why he was born, and they go to Nazareth only afterwards. Luke has them come in that famous going to be, you know, for the, for the uh, census, they have to go there to be registered for the census. Mm. But again, in the first century, quotation, born in Bethlehem would be like, for us, born in a log cabin. <laughs> you know, it makes us think of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. So that if I were, if I were to say of, of a president, no, no president in particular, but he thinks he was born in the log cabin. You'd know what I mean. I'm not, right. <laughs> sure. Giving, I'm not giving you a biography or anything. He could have been born in the palace, but I'm saying he thinks he's Lincoln. So mm. all of this are clues that any intelligent first century Jew would get immediately. Mm. They might reject it, of course, or they might accept it, but they would certainly get it. Mm. They would certainly understand it. And therefore, as I've said, there's no missing years. Each mm-hmm. does an overture to their own gospel and then opens up the story with Jesus, you know, at 30 years of age or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there, there are no missing years. In one sense, you could almost say everything is missing except that overture at the beginning. Yeah. So each of them, I would describe them as a parabolic overture. By a parable, I mean a made up story in this case, it's made up, of course, about an historical figure, Mary, Joseph, Jesus. But to be an overture, mm. to be a, like a preamble for what follows. So it's almost like the, the story that Matthew and Luke tell is the lens through which the rest of their gospel is supposed to be read through. It should be. And if you yeah. miss, quite frankly, you've missed a major help they give you. And I go back to remind you again, if you were handed an ancient manuscript even if it was in english it would be wall-to-wall writing no breaks no anything and you know you'd be so grateful okay now this first chunk these first folios of the manuscript Mm. that'll give you what's going on okay i got it so watch for new moses so okay there's going to be five big chunks like moses wrote the pentateuch in our tradition so i have to watch for five big chunks of like speeches from jesus okay i get it so Mm. It's like a major help, a major clue to be reader-friendly, if you will, and to simply collapse the two of them into the crib. I, I'm, I'm not talking against the crib. I'm sure, really not. sure. <laughs> you mean, I, I would not change the crib one bit, but you understand what's going on. Yeah. Of course, putting, in one sense, you could say, well, the nice thing about the crib is that you have the shepherds. Mm who are not, who are more like the have-nots. Right. (laughs) Wise men, who are not kings, by the way. They really are not kings. Mm. They are scholars. Mm. The magi of Persia were the scholars. If you want to call them their prophets, if you would. So you have, I'm quite happy to say, since I'm at least in one of those categories, the have-nots and the haves who are scholars. Not kings. So when they get themselves crowned, and by the way, of course, as you know, it doesn't say three. It's just three gifts make people think there's three of them. But they're not kings. They should not be called kings because clearly they're the magi. They're scholars. Mm. So talk to me a little bit more about this parable piece because this was a big thing for me to try to wrestle with in the book. And do you mind if I read a quote actually from your book? No, of course not. No, okay. very Thank you. So you say, uh, you and Marcus say this, uh, Jesus told parables about God and the advent of God, the coming of God's kingdom. Uh, His followers told parables then about Jesus and his advent, the coming of the bearer of God's kingdom. In this sense, we see the birth stories as parables about Jesus. We focus on their more than literal and more than factual meanings. To see these stories as parables does not require denying their factuality. It simply sets that question aside. So maybe like drill down a little bit deeper into this, especially for people who grew up maybe in the same arena that I did, because like, as I sat through Christmas pageants as a kid, like the one thing that was drilled into my head was that what I was watching most certainly happened. And to question anything was essentially to question everything like the star, the virgin birth, the angelic announcement, like all of these things. So talk to that person who's maybe feeling like they have to white knuckle, for instance, the virgin birth. Like that's something I just absolutely cannot let go of because if that's a parable, 
Like okay. that just rumbles the whole foundation of my faith. Like, how do you respond to that? All right. And that quotation, you know, Marcus and I weren't in absolute agreement. We both agree on that data, but I would have no trouble saying a parable is not factual. Mm. I have no problems. And if, if somebody thinks it is, with all due respect, if they want to argue, the good Samaritan certainly could be a, could have been a real person. And he had a donkey and two denarii. I would simply say to him, yeah, but you're kind of missing the point. It would be, let me stick with that for a second. Imagine Jesus telling the Good Samaritan parable. Mm. Imagine somebody in the crowd saying, hey, hey, excuse me, excuse me, Jesus. I want to know whether that really happened. And then supposing the whole crowd starts arguing, it's a parable, idiot. And somebody says, <laughs> no, 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 I've been down in that road and there's bandits in that road. I think he's telling us some local gossip. And Jesus will be tearing his hair out because, <laughs> you know, he's trying desperately to get a point across and they think this is some news and some gossip from what happened on the road. So he's failed then completely mm. because the point of a parable gets lost in the argument. Now, mm. if you want to, it is perfectly valid. And we go back to it to ask a question. Did Herod slaughter young children in Bethlehem? It's a perfectly valid question. And mm. I will answer no. If somebody says, well, could he have? Sure he could have. But when I'm reading a parable, I, I go with the meaning. Let me back up a little bit. I'm, I'm kind of caught between saying the date. Well, you know, when we have to listen to TV and we listen to different people saying half the time we're listening to, we call them interpretations. Mm -hmm. You could call them parables, but they're based on human beings. There, there's a difference in the sense the Good Samaritan, let me say, never existed. Mm -hmm. Prodigal son, let me say, never existed. It's a fictional story about a fictional character. Mm. When you're dealing with Jesus, or say Matthew and Luke in, in the first two chapters, you are dealing with fictional stories about factual characters. Factual characters. Mm. And in my own book, um, On the Power of Parable, I, sub, I subtitled it, How Parables by Jesus became parables about Jesus. In other words, how the New Testament writers, as I said, picked up this bad habit of telling parables <laughs> from Jesus. So uh, like if you, if you don't like it, take it up with God. As right. <laughs> it's not, his fault. <laughs> not, not my idea of how to, but um, part of the, the, the importance of that book is in the middle, I had an interlude and I took, I think maybe seven different reports by Roman authors of the crossing of the Rubicon. We all know the crossing of the Rubicon is a metaphor today for the decisive moment. Mm. When you've crossed the Rubicon, you've taken your, you've taken your uh, legions across the border into the Roman territory, and therefore <laughs> you've just committed high treason in plain language, you're invading Rome. So crossing the Rubicon means the die is cast, as it were. That's another metaphor from it. I read seven ones, seven ones, including one by Julius Caesar, who never bothers mentioning me. He just mentions he was marching on Rome. Uh, others said, for example, a, a ghostly figure stood on the side of the, the river and said, do not cross. Do I think that happened? No. That represented the anti-Caesar faction that said he shouldn't have done this. Mm. Other stories said a beautiful woman appeared and say, pass on, pass on, cross. Mm. So when you read them all, you, you say, these are parables for and against or neutral about an historical event. Hmm. So whether we like it or not, if you only read one of them, of course, <laughs> it's quite simple. When you read all of them, you begin to see, all right, he did cross the Rubicon because there's no way of getting from my forgotten Ravenna to Rimini or wherever it was hmm. without crossing the Rubicon unless you took a boat. So yeah, he must have done it. He didn't think it important. So now, people have to get, first of all, into their mind, parables are good. Mm -hmm. Jesus tells parables. Why doesn't he just give sermons? Say what he wants to say. He tells parables because the function of a parable is to get into your mind and make you think. You listen to the Good Samaritan, for example, from Jesus, and at the end, you're left thinking, well, you really mean that a Samaritan, one of them guys, 
would stop and help a Jew in the ditch? Huh? They're all bad guys. They wouldn't be doing that. What do you mean telling us a priest and a Levite didn't help them? Are 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 good people? And you're. It makes you think. It bugs you. It's like the the grain of sand and the oyster. You won't let it go. I have, I don't think a Samaritan would have done that. Yeah, but he. You know, it sounds reasonable. He could hear the donkey. So it makes you think. That's the purpose of a parable. Whereas if I tell you, do this, do that, you might say, oh yeah, sure, and forget it. But I tell you a story, and then you go away either annoyed by it or enthralled by it, and it makes you think. Now, mm. grant that. That's what Jesus does. He does it all over the place. Yeah. Now, what would you say in response, like say somebody listening to this and in their mind, they're thinking, because what came to my mind is Luke chapter one in the verse, couple of verses. Um, he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of these things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those uh, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Because like in my past and i'll be honest with you sometimes yep. in, in seminary in seminaries your your work would come up and we would talk about this idea of uh you know the birth story being more of a of a fictional story or a parable and this was a, one of the big arguments i guess that was brought up against it is well it says right here that luke is writing an orderly account so how how would you respond to that okay this this takes us back to luke one the first four verses of Luke mm -hmm. he didn't mention the last verse, which is very important because he says, so that you might have asphalia is the Greek word. So you might have security about what you know. Mm. Okay, now he says, look at the logic of that. Other people have written orderly accounts, mm -hmm. but I am going to write an orderly account. So you may have asphalia mm. security about your story. Well, if, ever, if other people have done such a good job, what's left for him to do? It, it's quite common in, when people write dissertations, they say somebody has written this, that, and the other, but they haven't done it well, or they haven't done it fully, or they haven't done it completely. So I'm going to do it properly. That's the typical way to start. Right. I'm going to do it better. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm going to write about the French Revolution. What do you know about the French Revolution? Well, everyone else uses only French documents. I'm using the Prussian documents, the German mm -hmm. documents. You, know, you have to justify it. Yeah. What, what security is he giving? Asphalia is a word he uses it elsewhere, which actually means security, not in knowledge, but security from attack. Mm. He's telling people, I'm going to tell you about your faith and how it is secure from the Roman Empire. He's going to tell you about how every Roman official, <clears throat> including Pilate and Jesus, and including Herod Antipas and Jesus, is going to tell you innocent. Hmm. Every Roman official in Luke and Acts, Acts as well, of course, the second volume of Luke, is going to declare Christians are innocent. Hmm. So now, dear Christians, I'm going to tell you the story other people have told it. They've told it orderly. I'm going to tell it orderly, but I'm going to tell you my language. It's a safe religion. Mm. Don't be afraid. So it has nothing to do with what you and I might call accuracy. And the reason we know this, whether we like it or not, is that scholars all agree that Luke is using Mark as a source. Mm. Now, we have Mark. So we can put it the way I would read it in parallel columns and I can watch Luke omit stuff from Mark, add stuff to Mark, change Mark. And I can know whether I like it or not that he feels completely free to change the very words of Jesus. Mm. Matthew's doing the same thing, of course, to Mark. So the, the problem that everyone has to begin with is that Mark is a major source for Matthew and Luke, and we have Mark. Mm. So we can see these two at work. So that's where I begin with. I begin with that as a given. Mm. And it's a scholarly given, it's not a dogmatic postulate. If we came up with tomorrow with a, a source from the year 80 or something like that, that was all mixed with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, <laughs> I would say, oh, we have a single source for all three of them. No, but for the moment. So I can understand that they consider 
that they have a mandate from God, I would imagine, to tell the story, to retell the parable, the best way that makes sense for our audience. Mm. So if, if Matthew is involved, say, with fellow uh, Pharisaic Jews, and he's a Messianic Jew, and he's arguing with his Pharisaic, non-Messianic Jews, that's his audience. That's mm. the group he's writing for. Luke, Luke is writing probably for a primarily Gentile audience. That's not his audience. So he, he adapts the basic story. We can follow the basic story, of course, differently. And I'm going to say to people, again, look, these are the facts. Mm. Scholars don't have too much consensus. So when you get a consensus of scholars, it's called a miracle, actually. <laughs> so I, whenever I find it, I say, okay, I'm going along with that. Mark is a major source for Matthew and Luke. So that tells me what they're up to. Yeah. Now, I mightn't do that. If I was running this show, there wouldn't be four according to's. You notice the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Right. There's only one gospel. There's not four gospels. We say that mm -hmm. all the time. We're wrong. There's one gospel in four versions. The gospel mm -hmm. is Jesus. So there's only one Jesus, only one gospel. Yeah. But there's four versions. So that's a given. And again, I'm going to tell people with all due respects, take it up with God. Not my idea. I would, there would have been just one if I was in charge. Right. <laughs> I'd say, okay, we've got all these four now. Collate them for me and give me one. Anyway, so people have to accept that. Then we have to accept the power of parable. Again, I've been blunt. Take it up with God if you don't mm -hmm. like it. Then when you get to this where we are. So in every case, I would never start by saying, Magi don't exist. Again and again, media, not you, but media, <laughs> especially I'm talking in the 90s, said, Crossan says Magi don't exist. But Crossan's question was always, granted they don't exist, why did he pick on Magi? Yeah. You know, he could have picked on three Pharisees. He could have picked on a couple of <laughs> Irish travelers. Why did he pick on three Magi? from Persia. Mm. So, so whenever you say this didn't happen, or Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Jesus was not, excuse me, Jesus was not born in Bethlehem. Then the next question you have to say, then why did both Matthew and Luke say it? Mm. You can't stop with the negative. It's, it's, it's childish. It's like adolescent, you know, big thrill that something didn't happen. Come on, we got over at that when we we're 15 or 16. You know, that's something out there and didn't happen and pa our parents say it did happen. Right. Most of us got over Santa Claus a little earlier. Hmm. And, it, you know, it's lovely when you have a child believing in Santa Claus. It's not funny if he's 15 even. Right. <laughs> the same I'm going to say with religion. It's fine to, to start off in all of these. You know, this, that's what it says. It says Jesus had a virginal conception. So that's what it, the way it was. Hmm. But I will ask always, in the first century, not talking about the 20th century, what did it mean to claim that a person had a virginal conception? Now, in the first century, if I'm writing a Jewish story, forget Christianity, and I want to say this child has grown up to be an extraordinary person, I say this child was born of aged and infertile parents. Mm. Now, wow, that that beats version of conception because that could be seen. Right. If an 80 year old woman has a child, then presumably somebody was there to help the midwife. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that's, that's the Jewish way of saying extraordinary adult. The Roman way of saying extraordinary adult is a God or a goddess and a human father or mother produced this child to ordinary intercourse. Mm. All right, both of them, both of those stories presume ordinary intercourse. Miraculous, if you will, but ordinary. Now, if I want to say my Jesus is greater than anyone in your tradition, his own Jewish tradition, or in the Greco-Roman tradition, virginal conception does fine. Mm. So now, what I have to say, the meaning of this story is to make a claim that this child, this adult actually, 
is of extraordinary value to the whole human race. That's mm. my thing. Not just to Judaism, not just to the Greco-Roman world, but to everyone. Therefore, of course, had this extraordinary conception. That's a claim. You're quite right, you know, as an adult in the first century, just say, I think that's bunk. I don't believe a word of it. <laughs> but what you can't do in the first century is what we can do in the 20th. Say, I don't believe in that stuff. Mm. Because everyone in the first century believed such stuff was possible. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the actual answer to somebody who would make that claim, virgin conception, the first century would be, okay, yeah, I recognize that can happen because I, I know stories more or less like that. But tell me what your guy, Jesus, has done that's of any value for the human race. Now, mm. now we're in a first century context. And if Paul was in there, for example, that's just the, the cue he needs. He would say, for example, well, you know, Caesar brought peace to the world, but the peace isn't lasting very good. Mm. <laughs> you know, check the periphery. And maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe, with, maybe it won't last very long. Our Jesus brings peace to the world through justice, not through victory. Mm. So all of these make claims. So anytime you get a, let me put it this way, a story that you and I say, well, I don't, I don't think that really happened. You, you know a claim has been made. Mm. And, you know, if I could use a very crude analogy, if I say to somebody today, you're a chicken. That is a metaphor. Mm. It's also an insult in our yeah. culture. If I say you're an eagle, that's also a metaphor, but it's a compliment. Yeah. So both of those make claims. You're a chicken. I'm making a claim about you. Mm. You, you, can, you may refute it by, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So metaphors and parables make claims. And the way to respond to them is either to accept the claim or reject the claim, but not to say, I, I don't think I really have feathers. <laughs> I, I don't see a beak. That, that's a be silly. Yeah. So that you and I would know immediately, mm. but we're reading a 2000 year old Greek text. We translated it into English. The culture is 2000 years ago. And in the name of God, why would we think we automatically know what it says? And too, I mean, people in that culture, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they didn't typically write, sit down to just write a historical document thinking, really want everybody to know exactly what happened in 3000 years from now. So let me make sure I write an orderly detailed account of it, right? That wasn't so much necessarily something that was on their, on their mind. Not the way you and I did. Now they would claim, they would claim a certain looseness between biography over history. Sure. They claimed in the first century that history should be able to be checked. Mm. And you know, there was recent history, it could be when Josephus is writing about, say, the Jewish war, mm. <clears throat> he's probably using um, sources that are kept by the Flavian archives in Rome. But for example, when you're writing biography, the function of biography was moral lessons, to be blunt. Mm. You should either tell the story to show, don't act like this guy, because look what happened. <laughs> and if you want to do that, you choose somebody. So if mm. you want to say, don't act like this guy, because you know what happened, you're going to choose Pompey mm. for a while, or maybe Julius Caesar because he got assassinated. Mm. You probably won't choose Augustus. At least it wouldn't be prudent to do that until he's dead. <laughs> you could do it <laughs> at dead, maybe, or Nero or somebody. So it's all right, but what you do is you choose. It's, it wouldn't be all right to write an autobiography of Augustus. Well, they came close to doing it <laughs> by saying he's like a villain. But, <laughs> You, you can do that, but still it was accepted as a judgment mm. on, on a person. So if you want to think of the Gospels as on the borderline between history and biography, it would be perfectly all right that they announce, again and again, I repeat, Gospel. That's what they call them when mm. they put a title on them. They didn't say history, didn't say biography, say Gospel. But that's good news. Now... If you're watching the television some evening and you jump up and say, good news. 
that depends on your judgment. Right, on your perspective, yeah. <laughs> Maybe your team has won, my team has lost. Maybe it's an election. Who knows? But it's a judgment. It doesn't mean it's wrong. Yeah. It could be your judgment. It could be the judgment of thousands of people. It could be the judge. Um, we, have found, we have found a vaccination that infallibly cures COVID and done with a simple little injection in your in the tip of your finger. Good news. Yeah, I think oh, hmm. I'm going to say universal. <laughs> Good news. Right. That's still a judgment. I mm. suppose we're not hearing the view of the COVID <laughs> or the, <laughs> SARS, the SARS itself. So I think they are openly and honestly telling you this is good news. Yeah. Now, if I'm going to tell you good news about Jesus, I have to interpret it. And I'm definitely saying from my point of view. And they mm. are allowed, whether we like it or not, possibly more latitude than you and I would want to mm. say if we are talking about um, a president or somebody who's, who's living and we want to say good news about this person, bad news about this person, we would have far more constraints. But basically, we are, we're still using a judgment. Yeah. Because you can never have a fact without a judgment. Mm. As human beings, we live in, on the knife edge between fact and interpretation. Mm. Sometimes, of course, that's when we really get in the screaming matches because your fact is my interpretation. That's not <laughs> a fact. That's just your interpretation. So we, we live on that knife edge. Now they push it. Make no mistake about it. Mm. They push it, but they tell you it's a gospel. <laughs> they should say, caveat lecture, be very careful. This is, this is what we consider to be good news. When I was coming out of my uh, evangelical kind of mindset, I put my Bible away for. Oh, maybe six months because I just had certain baggage that I carried with me when I read it. And one of those was everything in there was pretty much literal. Yes. Um, and when I had started to come across a little bit more of your work and I picked my Bible back up, that's one of the, I think one of the biggest, most helpful things for me has when, whenever my mind goes back to that question of, did this actually happen? Because that comes from those, my upbringing, I try to spin it back to, well, why did they write it in the way that they did? And I think that's the much more interesting question because to your point, like these people are writing these, these letters, these whatever you want to call them, to specific groups of people for specific reasons who lived in specific times and places. And it's much more interesting, I think, to ask the question of, well, why did they say this the way that they said it here, but this person who wrote about the same thing didn't say it the same way over here? Like, what was this person trying to say to this group that that person was trying to say to that group? And I think that that in and of itself brings a whole like deeper meaning to like your faith. And for me, it's helped me have, a, I think, a deeper picture of Christ and Jesus and just what, what the gospel message really is all about. Well, it has for me. I mean, I'm a historian. I'm also yeah. a theologian. Mm -hmm. I think if you're not a theologian, stay out of the Bible because it's all theology right if you want to be if you're a historian and you don't like theology that's like me saying well i'm, I'm a historian but i want to work on Aesculapius and you know uh, hippocrates and ancient medicine well i better know something about medicine so right the other thing <laughs> i'd like to emphasize is what makes me think i know mm. okay i'm two thousand years after what makes me think i have any right to say this is what matt well, the right is an earned right. It could still be wrong, of course, but it meant I had to get to know that first century as almost as, no, I'm not going to say as well as I know the 20th century, you know that. <laughs> but to read everything I could get my hands on in, in Jewish material, in Greco-Roman material, one thing. So I had to read everything I could read. Hmm. Um, secondly, I had to travel all those areas. Years, years going in Pauline, places in Turkey, in Israel, lived for two years in Israel. Um, well, actually, it was in Jordan. It was in 1965 uh, to 67. So I was living in Jerusalem, but it was then in Jordan before the war. Mm. Um, and to go to the museums all over the Middle East and see all this stuff. So you kind of immerse yourself as much as you can. Now, you can't get out of your own skin, and it's, it's fallacious to think you can. But mm. still... I'm trying, you're trying to get a feel for the way it's going on as much as you can. So then 
when I read Matthew 1 and 2 or Luke 1 and 2 or anything there, I'm putting it back, first of all, into its own ambient time mm -hmm. and asking myself, okay, what did they mean to communicate? It's, it's like if somebody's speaking to you in a foreign language, somebody speaks to me in Armenian, say, I don't know Armenian. So you have to go into sign language and try and figure out what's going on. Now, that's only like the first stage. Mm -hmm. The second stage is if I think this is of some value, and otherwise I probably wouldn't be bothered reading it, I then ask myself, is this still of enduring value today? Or is it something absolutely dated, perfectly reasonable, made sense, required in the year, let's say, 90, but absolutely outdated now? And I do this exactly the same when I'm reading the Torah. And I find, for example, some things there that are absolutely, I think, outdated. And some things like, uh, <laughs> like <laughs> for the Sabbath day, justice, for example, <laughs> that everyone gets a rest on the Sabbath day, including your, including your, your children, your, your draft animals, and your, ser your servants. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's still valid. So it's an ancient, ancient document, an ancient vision. And we're not that smart, honestly, that we can start up all over again. I kind of look out at my window and I see right now giant oak trees, living oak trees. And they're gorgeous, huge branches. I know that when the next hurricane comes through, it's not the beauty of the branches, it's the depth of the roots yeah. that matter whether they're coming in my window or staying out there. So a tradition. I, I'm not so convinced that we can live without profound traditions, traditions, traditions of some ongoing val validity. I'm not going to say eternal validity, but at least ongoing validity that we live in them. Otherwise, I think to try and invent the wheel all over with every generation, I think we have to learn a little bit from the past I can't not think in the moment, the moment that I wish we had learned more about the COVID mm. from, from the great flu. Um, you know, things have happened in the past. Other countries respond somehow, especially in America, we think we can't learn from anyone else, including our own history. Yeah. And so it's sad. So I read the New Testament, and in fact, the whole Christian Bible, that way. It's like listening to a conversation. What is this person trying to tell me? And is it still of profound validity? Because it's still around after 2,000 years, at least. Mm. And yeah, I read, I read the Roman stuff also with, with the same type of respect. If I have to decide between Augustus and Jesus, as they had in the first century, I want to know what each of their platform is. As it were. Right, right. You know, if they're running for... They're running for presidency. Okay, what's your program? What's your platform? And that's the way I read it, actually. Yeah, that's so good. So, last question for you, um, similar to what I asked you actually for for Easter, but I'll gear it towards Christmas. Um, what would you say? What What is the good news of Christmas? Like the angel uh, made that announcement, which is what this series is called, "Good News for All People." Um, what does that mean to you these days? Well, I think it means this. There are two visions for peace on earth that have been here for thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, maybe, maybe since, since the dawn of our species. <laughs> two visions. In the first century, they represented the Roman vision, and let me call it the Judeo-Christian vision. I, I use that term because it involves both of them. The Roman vision quite clearly said you get peace and they meant peace. They really meant peace. The Roman peace, Pax Romana, to victory. After you've conquered people, everyone settles down, and we have nice roads, nice infrastructure, beautiful cities, baths, temples, everything, and we have peace. Now, it's inside the parameters, of course, of our legions who are on the Rhine, the Danube, the Euphrates, and guarding the frontiers, but inside everything is peace. And it, yes, that's a persuasive. I'm not mocking it but it's peace through victory. Mm. Over here, you have an alternative vision. And it's extraordinary even to have one that says, no, 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 no. You get peace through justice. Mm. By justice, I mean, when everyone gets a fair share of the world's stuff, 
Yeah. And peace. Yeah. Now that's a clash between in Luke two, as I said, between the mention of Augustus, whose boast is the Pax Romana, the, the beautiful temple in Rome, the Arapaches Auguste, the altar of Augustan peace. Mm. Augustan peace, because he's he's brought peace from Roman civil war. Overall, that is an alternative. And coming straight out of the Torah, the prophets, into Jesus, into Paul, you get peace when you have justice. I think those are magnificent visions, and I think they're as valid as options in the first century, as in the 20th century or 21st century, except, of course, that peace through violence requires far greater violence in the 21st century than anyone could have dreamt of in the first century. Yeah. So the, I think what we have to listen very carefully to the fact that the East and West met, East and West, shepherds and magi, met at the birth of this child. Mm. And the announcement at the birth of this child required the whole host of heaven. We had a choir, like not one angel on a, <laughs> on a job. We had the whole choir of heaven to announce peace on earth. It's still a dream, it's still a vision, it's still a hope. It's getting more and more, I think, like an evolutionary challenge if our species is to survive. That's so good. What a, what a beautiful vision that is. I think for me, like growing up, it was the good news was just about going to heaven when you die. That was pretty much the extent of what the good news is. But I love this picture that you just brought. The, the good news is about justice for all people justice meaning a fair share of the spoils of the world so to speak i think that's beautiful so you're, you're thinking of heaven and hell in this vision not so much as locations in the future yeah. as options in the present that's that right. each, day, each day we're choosing all across the world in tiny little steps yeah whether we're walking into and through heaven or walking into and through hell yeah every day yeah, and what kind of what kind of world are we creating, right? With our actions, with our words, are we creating heaven or are we creating hell? Because it's yeah, there's a lot of hell around us. <laughs> every one of us, including myself, yeah. every decision we make. That's right. Well, Dom, uh, this has been amazing. We're just about out of time, but thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk with me. To be honest with you, uh, when I started the podcast, you were on my list of like top five people to talk to, and I've been fortunate enough now to talk to you twice. So, so thank you. All right, and Len, have a happy, healthy, and holy Christmas. Uh, you as well. And uh, I'm sure I'll email you some, some questions that I have <laughs> in the upcoming months. All right. Thank All right, you, thank you so much, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Go and hit a run, I'ma check. Wish I had no other sin, most beat, I'ma check. Wishing for my people. Uh. Wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name our own future, we bring our own sand. Wherever we live is so bland. So much with high on demand. Tiptoe around throwing high lows. Feel like James Brown, love, we go in here to dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fall. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champion. Go ahead, call the ambulance. So we said our own ambience. Dub TTG train to go. Let's talk, no rambling. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love, but I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love, but I just ignore it. Wish I had red bottles on my feet, everything falls on me. Then I start clicking my heels to the ride, did this beat neat? Ever wanna follow my speed? Let's close those more keys. Carolina Rose on freeze. Wishing I could fly to the keys. That will be more free. Something in my mind, hit the dough. Put on my fresh fit. Toast Sir Charles, let's go. We about to go and get it. Uh, let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at the fall. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champions. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. 
Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love, but I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love, but I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign, wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love, but I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love, but I just ignore it. I wish.